Hello, this is the Cracking Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Anna, editor at TICE, a leading site for cybersecurity decision makers and enthusiasts alike. Last month, March 12, 2019, marked the 30-year anniversary of the World Wide Web, and it was around this time that I met with former senior British intelligence officer and head of cybersecurity at ITC, Malcolm Taylor. The serendipity of the occasion provided an opportune moment to ask Malcolm how he thinks the web has evolved since its inception and whether it's ultimately been a force for good or bad. We also discussed the nature of privacy and trust and how they've changed during that time and are changing still. As a starting point, however, I began asking Malcolm about spear phishing and how criminals specifically target their victims through carefully designed emails. This is, of course, in contrast to traditional phishing attacks, usually conducted by sending malicious emails to as many people as possible. So let's cue to Malcolm, who outlines how criminals craft a spear phishing attack. So how do they start? Um, once they've identified a target, they um, will invest a huge amount of time and effort and resource in research. So the very first thing they'll do is use Google. And it's, it's, it's an incredibly powerful tool. And if you think that um, companies and individuals who are going to be targeted specifically, they will in some way be high profile, usually. And that's why they're being targeted. So their Google results will be enormous. So there'll be a lot of information out there. And they will create what they would call a target pack which is a dissection of the life of an individual or a company and just gather as much information as they can. And that will be personal information, it will be company information, it will be technical information, anything they think is useful. And they'll put it together in a pack and use that to um, build an attack that they think has more chance of success. So, for instance, the sorts of things they will do um, on a company, LinkedIn is hugely valuable. Um, most social media is designed to log inwards. We're supposed to make it private so that you know our friends can see what we do, but nobody else. People don't do that, of course, so it's out there for the world. Um, LinkedIn is designed to look outwards. So anything you put on LinkedIn is visible to anybody in the world, really, who's got a computer. And if just have a browse through and look at people's accounts, there's so much stuff there that people put on that's not uh, necessary. Email addresses, phone numbers, I've seen a home address, you know, CVs are really useful because you can glean a lot of information from a CV about um, a person's skills. If you translate that corporately, you can glean a lot about the technology that company uses. So if I look at company X, I look at their IT people, they're all skilled in certain technologies, I can be pretty confident that company is using those technologies. I look at job adverts, um, we need a developer in this to do whatever gives me a great insight into their technology stack. I can begin to picture what they look like as a target. On an individual basis, hobbies are a very um, uh, commonly researched thing. So, and the reason for that is because people are interested in those subjects. So if I'm going to send you a, an, an email with a phishing attack in it, I want you to open it. So if you are interested in the subject, you're more likely to open it. If you are interested in that subject enough to sign up for lots of emails and things, you may think you've signed up for it. You're expecting, in some sense, to receive it. 
you're much more likely to do what I as the attacker want you to do, which is to open it, click things, download things, open documents, etc. Engage with my attack. And they do that by gathering information. And they design it using that to give them the best chance of success. So, I mean, all the information is out there, and we're encouraged to share our details. What do you think about all this? We can't stop that. No, I think... Um, I think we are not encouraged to be as cautious with our information as we should be. So what are the recurring patterns you see, the errors? Really? Yeah, so social media that's not secured. Um, all social media platforms, with the exception of LinkedIn, you can reduce down to the people that you're allowed to see the information. If you just follow the privacy um, settings, people don't do that, um, and, and they should they're protecting one of their most valuable assets, which is their data. Um, applications on phones are a great example. If you download a free app, somebody spent a couple of years building that app, there has to be an upside for them financially, and that's your data. And when you, um, having read it really thoroughly, like all of us do, tick that little box that says, I accept the terms and conditions, somewhere in there it will say, we are, uh, are going to have access to your data. Um, but we don't think about that. We just think, great, free app, I'll download it. And, you know, I do that, you do that, I'm sure. Everybody does. And nobody ever reads those um, terms. And that's about being incautious with our data. Um, so how a, can we be more cautious? You have to think about it. But I don't think we're educated in that in, in the UK. Um, I think things are a little bit different in the US. Um, I think you can see that to some extent in the in the response to Edward Snowden. So Edward Snowden, and, and you know this isn't these aren't scientific statistics. Fifty fifty in the U.S. a hero and a villain. A villain because he gave away secrets about what the NSA were doing. A hero because he revealed that the U.S. government was spying allegedly spying on its citizens. And um, the, the, the kind of approach to privacy in the US is such that that made people supportive of what he did. In the UK, that's, I think, much less the case. And he's much more seen as a, seen as a villain um, because he revealed something that, that he shouldn't have done. What do you think? A hero or villain? Yes. <laughs> um, intelligence work always involves a difficult decision about the intrusion into the privacy of the individual against the need to protect national security. And what he did was, was a really strong um, reminder of that and a, and, and, a, and a strong challenge to the agencies to sort of make sure you've got this right. Now, I don't agree with what he did in the slightest. He's caused great damage, um, no doubt about that. Uh, but... Um, I think having that kind of reminder of that issue, which sits at the heart of everything that, that, that the intelligence agencies do, is really important. And I think it's one of the things that sets apart... Um, or no, no, let me put that another way. Um, the Chinese don't do that, the Russians don't do that, the Iranians don't do that, um, and, and, and you know, a number of other countries as well. I when guess. you say they don't do that... So they don't have that level of concern about the privacy of their citizens. Yeah. So their intelligence operations, their, their national security imperative 
um, defined by them, of course, will trump those things. And so they're, 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 they're able to be much more aggressive. And, and I guess the kind of, um, you know, Salisbury, the Russians murdered somebody with, with nerve agent inside a foreign power. That's, that's an incredibly aggressive thing to do. And they, they will take the same approach to, to cyber attacks, to privacy, to all of those things. But I guess the argument is we live in a democracy. Um, yeah, and that's, so I think, that's, I think, the, the point that, that there needs to be, that, that there are, and there needs to be, and, and reminders of it, um, checks and balances and everything, and every intrusion of privacy. And, you know, circle back to the start of this conversation, we as individuals don't really do that. We give away our data. So there's a, sometimes we can't join an app without doing so, no, as you no, say. So no, you can't. We're trapped. Yeah, it's really difficult. It is. And I'm not sure that the balance is right between the individual and, and the tech companies. Large and small, I mean, the, the, the large ones get kicked. You know, Facebook, etc. And, 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 and I guess they've got um, relatively more powerful, so that's probably right. But it's also the small, you know, free apps often come from very small people very small companies. Do you think they're um, being kicked enough? So I think governments are beginning to digest the issue that, that perhaps the balance isn't right. I'm not sure that users are. So, you know, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, Facebook, um, has coincided with Facebook losing users and there's been various campaigns to around Cambridge Analytica to make that accelerate. Um, I think most of the users they've lost is because they're no longer seen as cool. It's about demographics. So actually, Facebook is becoming something that older people use. And, and the, the kind of growth area, which is clearly young people, are moving to other, other platforms. So I don't think users have yet grasped that, um, that privacy is the issue here. And there's a, one of the um, text app providers claim that they can deduce when two people are going to have an affair before those two people themselves really <laughs> know it based on the metadata around their communications. By which I mean, you know, you can, if you look at who somebody communicates to um, for a reasonably short period of time, you can work out who their significant others are, you can work out who their family are, and, and, that, and we all do, we all live in a pretty predictable digital way. And they can, in that, spot anomalies Mm, that's quite scary in a way. It is quite scary, the, the yeah. other possibilities. Yeah. But I think it's great for identifying how important data is. And um, back to your question about whether they've been kicked enough, um, I just don't think their users understand that. The message isn't out there. I think it was four years ago that data was described as the new oil. And we, as the kind of oil wells, still haven't realised that. So it's, it's interesting because I, I see that people's trust in, in the bigger institutions like the banks, the church, government, yeah. is obviously on the wane. And yet we're so trusting with, with our data, with what we say. We trust strangers on, on um, TripAdvisor, Tinder, Uber, Airbnb. What do you think about this? So I, th I mean, I think you're right. I think we, um, we engage... Uh, completely differently online and, and that even to the point of you know people who send um, posts on Twitter send text messages that they really shouldn't and they sort of get senders remorse a little bit later and delete them and say it's that sense of sending into a vacuum and actually you're not there's real people at the end of it um, 
that's one thing. I think uh, the internet works, and, and we can use it as we use it, by proving who we are. So authentication, passwords, fingerprints, retinas, apparently, although I've never seen that work, um, you know, palm prints, whatever, uh, we prove who we are. Um, but we don't, at any stage, do enough kind of due diligence on who we're talking to. So we will engage with, we'll spend a long time, and when we do it properly, and not everybody does, authenticating who we are, and then engage in some quite intense, sometimes intimate, sometimes unwise um, ways with complete strangers. And that's, and I don't, and I think it's something to do with that notion before of talking into a vacuum. Um, but I don't completely understand why we demonstrate those levels of trust um, with people and organisations. We don't know. Even when, you know, organisations have been shown to behave badly with our data, right? only mean they've been breached and lost it. I mean, they use it in ways that aren't in our interest, and we still engage with them. Do you think there is even a, a, a room for privacy anymore? Because so much of our data is out there. Maybe the, the whole model is changing. What are, you, what are your thoughts on actual privacy and how is it moving and how it will move into the future? I think, I don't see any panacea that's going to give us, any technical um, panacea that's going to give us that coming down the track. I really don't. Um, you hear people talking about quantum computing. Um, I don't understand quantum computing, but I don't see it being that kind of paradigm shift that, that, that people talk about. Um, I think uh, we do a lot of work... Um, with clients around what we call their digital footprint. So what information have I left behind? And that's really useful from a security point of view. Um, all, you know, you can find passwords, you can find copies of signatures, you can find um, photographs, details of previous relationships. You, you can really build a picture of, of people online that they don't know are there. Um, and uh, we've begun to do a little bit of work with some schools who want to learn about cybersecurity, who want to teach it to kids. And, and more than one of them now is teaching their kids that what they really have is a digital tattoo, which is different to a footprint because you can get rid of a footprint, you can't really get rid of a tattoo. And we look at the information that's available online about uh, as permanent, it's there forever. There are, there are some legal things you can do, there are some technical things you can do to delete material, to have it redacted, um, to have it made harder to find, but it stays there forever. And um, you see that publicly sometimes where a celebrity, sports person, whatever, has tweets revealed that they perhaps posted when they were 15 or 16 and not very, not very savvy, and they're now 22, 23, they're completely different people, they've grown up. Um, and they come back to bite them and come back to damage them. And I think, um, I don't see that changing. What I'd tips do you have right now for us? <laughs> around privacy? Around privacy, around what we put out, this tattoo that we're forming that we yeah. might regret later on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, I don't think there's any great revelation. Be sensible, think about it. 
Um, don't drive drunk, I guess. Don't don't post drunk would be one. But think about privacy. Use privacy controls. Um, be aware that what you what is online about you is going to stay there forever. Um, people lose jobs because of things they post in the past because of you know Facebook employers will look into all of that now and and change their mind about making an employment offer. Um, that's a difficult message to give to a 15 or 16 or even a, you know, older than that age group, nonetheless. Concentrate what it is, which is a really valuable part of you, um, and, and criminals will use it against you, attackers will use it against you, potential employers will, um, you know, if your career takes off and you're a great success, then enemies will, um, and you need to be conscious of that throughout and take steps to manage it. Uh, Rachel Botsam, the author, um, says that trust is an elusive concept and yet we depend on it for our lives to function. What do you think about trust? Do you think we have to rethink about how it's built and eroded? I think there are some very hard lessons or some very hard thinking needs to be done about the way that um, big data, social media um, is being used in the name of democracy, which is almost the kind of apogee of trust, I guess. Um, the US election, the Brexit referendum, all of those have been questioned from that point of view, both in terms of foreign powers have tried to use it for their ends, which is what foreign powers do, you know, dog bites man, don't try and stop them doing that, but understand it. Um, but also about the way that campaigns have used that data um, legitimately and not, I think we've seen both, to affect an outcome. And um, it feels to me like we're going through a period right now of, of, I don't want to use the word dangerous, but a quite difficult period around trust and democracy and all of those issues. Because, um, you know, in the Brexit referendum, people said, we don't want to hear from experts. We don't want facts. Um, and, and that's a difficult world to be in. And I, you know, I completely agree with your, your quotation about trust is something that, that we build everything upon. And yet now we've almost got to a place um, where we don't know what facts are. We don't know what's true and what isn't. And the use of um, fake news, to quote, is really difficult and challenges all of those things. I don't see that getting better very quickly either. And democracy um, faces a real challenge from all of those issues coming together. And, and, and clever people using, using them to further their own aims, um, which in a sense is what democracy is. But what's true and what isn't is a different question. And what should we trust and what, what shouldn't we? Yes, I felt that a lot of people felt they, that the people representing them were untrustworthy. Yes and didn't represent them and yes. their views, so... Yes, yes. and... Maybe politics and democracy needs a, a rethink, yeah. as you and say. and laws do too, actually. And, you know, I worked in the government for a long time. I feel for them in terms of being able to keep up with technological change. It's a real challenge. Both political change and legal change is really slow. It has to be, almost, to work properly. Um, and that's a question of trust in that, of course. But technology is changing so quickly. 
and the way we behave is so different to how it was even 10 years ago. Smartphones and, and all of that has, has changed things really dramatically and governments can't keep up. Do you, do you feel that they will be able to? They're fighting back now, I think. And that, you know, what I was saying before about, I think government's beginning to get to grips with the notion that people like Facebook, just how powerful they are, Google, Apple, all those big tech companies, I'm not just picking on Facebook, um, are beginning to understand how powerful they are and are beginning to think about how they can legislate to control that. And is it the government's responsibility? Oh, that, uh, yeah. that, I mean, I think that's a different question. Um, it's a difficult answer in every direction. Uh, if, if it's not the government's, then whose is it? I don't, you know, I don't think they're going to do it themselves. I don't see a voluntary code of conduct working. Um, well, I mean, I guess if we're thinking about the, the web this week, the 30 yep. years, so Tim Berners-Lee did say that, you know, it is up to government, it is up to corporations and yep. the citizens. So it's everybody's role to um, tackle the, the web's downward plunge to a dysfunctional future. Yes, I mean, uh, I, yeah, it's hard not to agree with that. I don't see a solution that doesn't include regulation, legislation, etc. Um, GDPR, not doing that, but actually I think a very good thing. It, it encourages best practice, it encourages companies to behave in ways that we would want them to. Interestingly, it requires, I think, companies to look after our data probably better than we do ourselves, um, which is a question of privacy. Uh, and I think it's working. It's changing behaviour. I think legislation can work. I go through times when I think it's extraordinary that we don't have a department for data or a department for the internet or I'll never win a prize for a naming convention, a department, <laughs> a department for, um, for, for those things and a, and a Secretary of State who takes the lead for those things. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very big issue and I think it probably deserves more... more um, attention than it gets and uh, you know there's, there's a whether they like it or not there's a hierarchy in government departments and I don't think digital culture media and sport sits at the top of the hierarchy um, so it will get you know fewer people less money etc so it's less important than, than that and I think the internet and I think technology and I think data and the way it's used is more important than, it, than it's recognized at the moment um, where is the legislation where's the regulation where's the thinking about that um, I don't see that happening. So, so I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, I think probably you do need more government in intervention in, um, in all of those areas. And because your background is so unique, from everything we're reading, Huawei to concerns about the Russian meddling in elections, are we in a cyber-cold war? I think we have to accept that we... Uh, so, so the, you know, you go back a little bit, the great game, espionage, spying, all of that. Um, that's never gone away. It didn't go away when the Cold War ended. Um, it's been around, you know, it's, it's either the oldest or the second oldest profession. Uh, um, that will, hasn't changed. Uh, I think um, it's a new tool in their armory. And the cyber um, capability that changes all the time, gets more powerful all the time, um, but so do the defences in a way. Is just another tool they use. So it's the same end, same aim, different tools. Does that make it a cold war? I don't know. Um, there are hot people war. out there who call it a hot war, for sure. That is already happening. I think it's overtaking more traditional methods of, um, of the great game. And, and, uh, and that won't change, I don't, I don't think. I saw that in my career. My career pretty much mapped 
digital transformation in government. You know, when when I started, it was it was a, an analog world, and when I left, it was a very much internet world. Um, some of which was was you know revealed by Edward Snowden, um, and that will continue, and we won't go back to the old ways. I don't know if we're in a cold war or not. Well, looking at that journey over yep. the past 30 years, do you think the web has been a force for good? I think it's all but impossible to argue it's not a force for good. Um, I booked some train tickets online this morning. It was great. Um, I was looking at a holiday. It's excellent. I sent some emails. I got some WhatsApps. I've done my work all online. We all do. Um, yes, it's a good thing. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't throw up challenges, actually. Um, I do think we as users have to look ourselves in the mirror, look ourselves in the eye and ask ourselves the question, are we using the internet quite as we should? And that's about security. The most common password in the UK at the moment still contains the word password. And so whatever technological controls you put in place to control people, they will find a way to get around it. Um, so, yes, there, is, there are some technological things we can do, but we as users have to look ourselves in the eye. Don't give away our data. Don't use insecure passwords. Think about who we're talking to. Think about your point, trust. You know, I'm going to tell a complete stranger somewhere else around the world lots of intimate, personal details about me. I might send them some pictures. Think about the behaviour. And, and Malcolm, finally, are you positive about the future? Yes. But I suppose I'm quite a positive person. <laughs> well, yes, no, in a, yes, I am positive about the future, yeah. And, and, and yeah, the internet's a great thing. Technology's a great thing. Like everything, it brings upsides and downsides, and we have to get the downsides right. And, and we don't all help ourselves. But the future is definitely bright. Thanks to Malcolm Taylor. Lots of food for thought there. And it's time to draw close to this week's episode. You can keep up to date with our news, videos and features via Twitter. Our handle is at Tice, that's T-E-I-S-S. Please review us on iTunes too and leave us your comments. We appreciate your feedback. We'll be back next time for more Cyber Chat. So please join us then.